Let's pray. God, we just thank you, Father, and for your goodness, God, for your faithfulness. God, as we've begun this service this morning, God, as we've witnessed a water baptism, God, a profession of faith in you as a Lord and Savior, God, as we've lifted up our voices in worship through song, and as we've heard about the work that you've done, God, in Pastor Ben and his family's life, God, you bring us to the moment of the service, God, where we open up your word. God, where we study your truth. God, where you most clearly speak to your people. And God, I pray, Father, that it would be your words and your words alone. And God, that we would celebrate you in all that we do. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is a blessing to be here. I knew Pastor Ben was not going to be able to resist showing up this morning when he told me that last week. I said, he ain't going to no other church. <laughs> He'll be here. Um, yes, it's a blessing to have y'all here. It's nice to not see empty seats. I mean, Joel was there a lot of times, but it's just not the same, right? It is truly a blessing. But I'm going to continue us in our Easter series, From Passion to Victory. Pastor Kevin did a phenomenal job last week of just, yeah, give him a hand, absolutely. <laughs> Showing us that picture in Scripture there of where Jesus' disciples just kind of not had it all quite right. They didn't quite understand the idea of what the kingdom was going to look like and what serving was going to look like, but we're going to find out today that it really wasn't just them that had that struggle. They had some flawed views about what God's kingdom was and what was, and what was coming and what was to take place, even though they were so close to him in so many ways. And of course, he has to correct that mother and those two sons and kind of realign them and adjust them. And I'm praying that for us today, that he would do the same thing in our hearts, that he would adjust us and he would, he would bring us into what he has for us, what he's going through in the scripture here. Because we're going to look at the triumphal entry, which is in chapter 21 of Matthew, verses 1 through 11, but it's also in a couple of different other gospels. But we're going to look through what the Lord was doing here in our Easter series from passion to victory. I've titled today's message, Man's Flawed Ideas and Jesus' Perfect Plan. Man's flawed ideas and Jesus's perfect plan. So as you're looking for this, this, as you were studying through this, you may wonder, especially if you're new to the faith, you're like, if you're reading through the Gospels, you begin to think like maybe you just are missing something, or maybe you keep reading the same book. Well, the story repeats itself, so you're okay. If you read it three or four times, no problem. Actually, this particular one, if you read it four times, you have read all four Gospels because it is one of the few stories of Jesus that's actually in all four Gospel accounts. So it's okay. You're not losing your mind. You're just going through the Scripture. But to help us out this week, what we've done, and I give credit to my beautiful wife, um, she came up, well, she came up, you found it, okay, in all fairness. You may have received today this little Bible reading plan for, the, for Passion Week. If you don't have one, you can get one out on the thing. And what it is, and I think this is, this is so cool because there is so much that happened in the week leading up to Christ's death. I have to admit that I really, the, the triumphant entry, I have really probably, I don't want to say I've downplayed it in my life, but I really have not paid attention to what was going on there. And I'm praying that today the Lord will do the same thing in your heart. But to help you out as you go through this week, I would encourage you to read through each day the accounts of what was happening this week leading up to Christ's on the cross, which is ultimately the victory, right? That's where our victory came, through the cross. And that's why we've titled this series, From Passion to Victory, right? We're going to see the Lord work out this week. And we're going to see great passion that comes in all different kinds of emotions. 
but it culminates in victory. So join us if you don't mind, please, and we'll put this online as well, or Facebook, um, so that you can keep track of it. But it's an exciting, exciting week for us today. We celebrate Palm Sunday. There's a nice little backdrop out there for you to take a beautiful picture with your family. Please do so. But we're going to get into this. So speaking of the title of the triumphant entry, who likes triumph? Who here likes the story of triumph? Pastor Dom, you do? Absolutely. Pastor Dom is like the story king, right? Anytime I need a good story, I go talk to Pastor Dom or Tony Evans. Um, It's good company. Triumph, a great achievement, a great victory, right? And I was thinking about this week, I was like, man, I was like, it'd be cool to have like a cool story of triumph. And I don't, I don't really have one personally, um, but I did think about the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, yeah. I'm a child of the 80s, you know, watching TV in the 90s, probably more than I should have. But Emilio Estevez, right? Gordon Bombay, right? Started off, had a great disappointment in his peewee and career leading up, has a successful career as a lawyer, and then gets pulled over for drunk driving. It's a great movie for your kids. Um, gets sentenced to 500 hours of community service with a bunch of peewee hockey kids. Of course, he despises it. He hates it. He's got this ragtag group of kids. They're like most kids. Um, he puts them all together, and that's as the movie played out. They've, made, they've got like Mighty Duck 27 by now, I think. It's like been movie after movie. Some ones came out this past week, but as I thought about that, and as my kids watched it this week, and I did, I was like, man, this was inspiring to me as a kid. It was a great triumph. They come in, and they win. They win the title. There's like the, there's like the triple deke, and there's the flying V, and all these cool things that he plugs in, and it was exciting. Actually, I took up hockey, you know, because of it as a kid. Now, how do you play hockey in Chauvin, Louisiana? <laughs> you don't play hockey in Chauvin, Louisiana. You roll around on rollerblades with a ball, and you make plywood holes to shoot them into. But either way, we were inspired. It was a great story of triumph. But we're going to get into the text because there's something way more important here than my childhood and story. So if you could, if you would stand, I want to read this section of Scripture. Matthew 21, 1 through 11, and it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd, their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You may be seated. So the triumphal entry the greatest week of all time, the week leading up, the passion, the victory through the cross, the greatest week of all time. Victory is almost here. Now, today's message I'm going to just give you is a little bit of framework. I'm going to spend about half of the time kind of setting up some of the ideas and the things that will go on there, and then I'll jump into some of these points that you have there on your paper. So be patient with me. 
And I think there's some things that we need to see in what was going on in that time. Particularly in this one, I'm going to pick about four different areas because chapter 21 in Matthew is a, is a, is a break point. The 20 chapters before, obviously, were about Jesus' life and his ministry. And from 20 to the end, I mean, excuse me, 21 to the end is the week of passion. Matthew dedicated over 25% of his gospel to this. So therefore, it obviously carries great weight. Seven days, eight chapters, right? It's, a, it's exciting. It's a, it's a whole lot. It's action-packed with so many different things. One is Jesus is, although he's been doing ministry now for some time, it's changed a little bit. If you read back just the verse before of the triumphal entry, he heals the blind beggar. But he does something a little different than what he's done in the past. He tells them, he doesn't say anything to him about not saying about the healing, right? If we look back in Matthew 9, when it happened previously, verse 30, he says, and their eyes were open and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But he doesn't say that this time. His, his ministry is, is, is changing, right? Let's get some more context back in John 7, verse 30. It says, so we, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Up until this point, everything had been future tense. There was a coming that was going to happen. There was salvation that was coming. There was something that was changing. And then in John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows that his hour has now come. So his ministry is changing. It's getting a bit more public. People obviously know who he is, and we're going to see with this triumphant entry how big of a deal it really was. This is also one of Jesus' final trips to Jerusalem. Now, although he'll be going back and forth to Bethany the next couple days, this is his final trip into Jerusalem. We see through the text he's been there a handful of times throughout his ministry, but this is the one that's obviously marking his ultimate victory. And that's actually where our text starts today in verse 1, where you see where him coming in. So 30 years of obscurity and then three years of ministry all culminating now and a week of passion with the triumphant entry. Verse 1 reads, And now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. So he's been spending some time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Why? Because what did he just do? Just healed Lazarus, right? Brought him back. Brought him back from the dead. So that's where he's been spending some of his time. And what's interesting about this town, first of all, this is the only time this town's mentioned in Scripture. But guess what the name means? The house of unripe figs. The house of unripe figs. But what I find pretty cool about that is, is right after Jesus leaves Jerusalem this time, what does, he, what does he do coming in one time to Jerusalem? He curses a fig tree. And then he passes back the next time and he tells him why it's, explains to him why it's withered. Well, many, many theologians and many people believe that there was something specific about that area that the fig trees, because they, really, they don't bear fruit to about June. And this would have been obviously before that in, in the Marchish time. But the tree looked like it was ready to produce figs. But it didn't, right? So I find it very interesting that the town he walks through is called the House of Unripe Figs. It brings so much more context to what he's doing in that time. The Mount of Olives, where he would have, come, where he would have been coming in, is near the eastern gate of Jerusalem. Well, we know the eastern gate is significant, correct? Right? There's a belief that those people there, even today, have se- they at some point have sealed up, people not Christian, have sealed up that gate so that Jesus can't come back through it. Well, it's going to be a little different probably the second time, right? 
be more like a sky. But Jesus is going back and forth to Bethany. Let's just get this picture, because it says there, when he drew near to Jerusalem. So he's coming into Jerusalem as this starts. But also the triumphant entry is what initiates and starts for us today as we're looking at it. I don't believe they probably saw it quite so much in that moment. But this is the thing that launches the week of triumph. It launches what's about to happen with the Passover. All those events that style around that. Because, first of all, they were celebrating the Passover year after year. Why? Because that was part of the Mosaic Covenant, right? It was when the Israelites were saved from Egypt, right? It was a celebration of the, of the Passover plague and ultimately what's happening. And also, think about this. This was a required pilgrimage for, for Jewish males. So they estimate that they could have had as many as 2 million people in Jerusalem at this time. It's a lot of people. They did a census years later that they have on you know, historical document. It shows that it would have been close to that. But then what that also means is that they would probably would have had around 260,000 lambs slain for the Passover, according to what we know from Scripture and what would have been allowed and what, what each family needed. So think about that. Think about the amount of people, the amount of emphasis that's gone into this year after year. But this is cool because God is cool. He's more than cool. The 10th of Nisan, right? That's the 10th of the month of Nisan. The 14th of Nisan, as we know, is when, is when Christ died. But look what, look what happens on the 10th of Nisan, and I believe this is a direct connection to the triumphant entry. Read with me in Exodus 12, verses 3 through 5. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it from a sheep or from a goat. Well, guess what lamb's coming through Jerusalem right now? What lamb is being presented to the people of Jerusalem? The lamb. The lamb of God. Isn't that amazing? To see that played out? Because only days later on the 14th is when Jesus dies. The 14th in the sun, Exodus 12, 6, says that you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. God is amazing in his prophecy, amazing in his timing. Here is the, here is the Lamb of God being presented to all of Jerusalem at the time when they're out there selecting Regular lambs and goats and spots, ones without blemish and ones without spot. But the perfect lamb is coming in, mounted on a donkey. And that's just one in the line of the other multiple prophecies that he had in this section. First of all, the donkey and the colt. Did y'all know that that was a prophecy that was fulfilled? Yeah. Verses 1, the last part of verse 1 through verse 3, it says, Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. That's a direct prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Let's read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We see one of God's amazing attributes here. First of all, he says omniscience. 
He knows that that colt and that donkey is there and it's ready for him. He didn't pre-plan that. That was set forth from the beginning of all time, that that donkey and that colt would be there. We know a colt would have been a male, a young male, that would have been unridden. And as I thought about that this week, and Jesus sends those disciples over there, and I'm thinking about like me and my friend going to pick up a donkey for Jesus. And I'm thinking, I feel like that they just might have been daring each other to ride it back. Probably not. But I think about the first time I met a donkey. Any of y'all have donkeys? We had this idea when we were younger and not quite as wise, my wife and I, that we wanted a donkey for a pet. And um, I don't know why we thought that, but I guess because we like weird things. So we go visit this gentleman that had one. And if any of you have ever been next to a donkey when it decides to make the noise that it makes, and you're not curtailed, the Lord has truly destined you to take care of donkeys. Because they are loud. And we never talked about it again. But I'm thinking about these disciples have to go get two of them. They've got to get a mama donkey and this baby. And of course, they didn't ride it back because that wouldn't have been a fulfillment of prophecy. But they bring it back to Jesus. And kind of what Kevin spoke about last week of this idea of being serving. You know, this first time Jesus came, it's on a donkey. But what's the second time? It's a majestic horse. Actually, I heard somebody call it Air Horse One. (laughs) That only would work in America. (laughs) But we also see another prophecy it's, in, it's, it's direct, but we don't see it quite in the text as easy, is one from Daniel. Uh, Daniel prophesied in chapter 9, verse 25, and it says, Now therefore understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Of course, he's speaking about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple and the city there. But when you look at the math that's there, it says seven weeks and and 62 weeks without boring you with all the details. That means 483 years. That was during the reign of Artaxerxes that took place. And it is the exact time from when that prophecy, when that happened, when rebuilding the temple to now of 483 years. Only God. Only God can do those things. So the prophecy that is being fulfilled in this week is unbelievable. We see the reality of Jesus' ministry changing. We see the connection of why the triumphant entry is so important to start off this week. But now what do we do with all of that information, right? Got a little bit more head knowledge, right? We've sat through a couple things. Is it just some good info? It is good. But I think what's important for us now is to see how the people responded in that day in connection to what was going on. Because remember... Man's ideas are flawed around this idea, but Jesus' plan is perfect. It's perfect, despite what we see going on. Jesus' perfect plan, salvation from what? Sin and death. What did those people think it was? Roman oppression. They're slaughtering animals. The perfect sacrifice is coming in. A donkey, but they're expecting kings to come in on what? Majestic horses, great pomp and circumstance. He goes to the temple, not to the praetorium. He doesn't go to the government center. He goes to the center of the church, of his people. 
And ultimately, he's aiming for our hearts for the victory. Not an earthly victory, but our hearts. And I think it's no different for us today. The Lord Jesus is still making triumphant entries into the hearts of those that call him Lord. It's no different. But there's four responses that we see here from the crowd that I want us to look at. And how that connects, and, how do we, and what do we do with this as we celebrate and get excited about this week of victory in the cross? And that brings us to that first point there, that they praised him with their actions. They praised him with their actions. We pick up in verse 8, and it says, Most of the crowd spread their, spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So remember the picture, massive crowd. Much anticipation. They're leading up to Israel right now. It says we're being, they're being led up, coming out of Bethany. Much anticipation because they do know that at some point, if they've studied anything, that there's going to be a salvation of sorts connected with the, why they celebrate the Passover. Of course, their view is wrong. They see it as Roman oppression. But I could hear them in the crowd saying, some of them that knew that, is this the Passover that it's going to happen? Is this the year that it's going to take place. Is this when Jesus is going to save us from this tyranny? Right? You can hear the murmurs in the crowd going back and forth. And we see two things that the crowd does. We see two elements of praise. First of all, they spread their cloaks on the road. And you saw the disciples put theirs on the donkey. Well, this was a direct connection anytime there was the coronation of a king. We see an example of it in 2 Kings 9.13. It says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So that was the context of why they were doing that. They were saying, basically, let us be at your, at your feet. We place ourselves at your feet, even under the point that walk on us if necessary to get where you need to go. That's the picture of what they're doing there. But then they also do something else. They cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. They have them in their hands. Well, we know that this would have been palm branches. It doesn't specifically say it there. It does in John specifically say palm branches, in case you were worried. But it would have most likely been a date palm, which would have been a common palm in that day. It was a fruit-bearing tree, easy to get. If any of you have palm trees, you probably know you have a lot of debris from them, right? So the palm branches were available and easy to come by. But not only that, palm trees represented salvation and represented joy. There was a very specific thing that they meant. And I even wonder, were they thinking back to when the Israelites finally made it across the Red Sea? In the first place, the first place they go, remember the water is, is bitter, and they got to throw the wood in there to change it. But the next place, and we, pick, we see that in Exodus fifteen twenty seven, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by water. I wonder if they thought about that. A picture of salvation, a picture of joy with these palm branches and what it represented. But I think it even has a bigger implication. If we go to Revelation 7, 9 through 10, and it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the God, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what the Lord's working for. The ultimate time when he sets up his kingdom in its all totality. 
Whenever we have a triumphant entry there, listen to the language there, salvation, right? It's the same idea, salvation. Who's it belong to? To the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David, who sits now on the throne, who is the perfect lamb. I wonder sometimes, we see what their actions were. I wonder sometimes if our actions are similar. They glorify God in, in what we see, but where's our hearts? What's going on? Is it driven by our selfish desires, our flawed ideas, our circumstances, or our situations? Or is it in the purity that we believe He is truly the Lamb of God? Do we do for others or for Jesus out of what we can maybe get for it? Are we in the crowd? Or are we a Christian? Where do we fall? Where do we land? Are we just a fan of Jesus? Excited about everything that's going on? Or is he Lord of our life? Their actions are accompanied by words. The second point there being that they praised him with their words. Not only did they praise him with their actions, but they praised him with their words. In verse 9, we pick up and it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I was reminded this morning, one of the members of our life group had shared a, some texts with us, and he recounted the point in Luke, whenever the Pharisees speak out him and says, how are you allowing these people to say this? And he says, if these men don't say this, the what? The very rocks will cry out. The very rocks will cry out. And we learn, yes, you can give him a hand. We learned just a few weeks back that we are living stones to make up a spiritual house that God's kingdom is not what it what they saw it as but it's his people building and going so that's what he, that's what they're saying there and they say this hosanna to the son of david can you imagine the scene the shouting it's not a secret anymore right there's no doubt because think about it the, the chief priests and the pharisees had told them all if you see jesus if you find him report him well, it's pretty obvious right here. There's no reporting necessary, right? They're not worried about that. They're just going forward. They're yelling. They're screaming. But remember, their ideas were flawed. They were thinking he's there to overthrow the Roman government. They were desperate. I think about that chaotic scene there, and I'm sure it wasn't like poetry, and they were all in unison singing it. It's kind of like at my house sometimes. I tell my kids, sometimes we have way too many solos, and we need a symphony, because they all just want to play their own thing. They all want to say their own thing. And I can imagine that's what that scene was like. It was just loud and chaotic and everybody screaming and shouting. That's what the text says. But, then there's, but let's look at the words that they use. Because there is such depth in what they speak in here. First of all, Hosanna. It means to save now. Save now. And what a perfect time, right? Leading up to the Passover. Save now. And in their context, save us, Jesus, from Roman oppression. Save us now. We need this to happen now. They would have gotten this context from Psalm 118, verse 25. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we give you success. That was part of the Jewish hallel, which means praise, which, which consisted of Psalms 113 through 118. And this was something that they would have done at many Jewish festivals. 
that they would have recited this and done so. So they're saying, praise, save us now, O Lord. But think about this. What was that crowd shouting only days later? Crucify him. What a fickle group of people. Save us, kill him. Save us, kill him. But this is amazing. Little did they know that both of those words is what brought salvation. Crucify him is what brought salvation. It's what brought victory for you and I here today. They didn't know that. That's not what they were thinking. They were tired of it. He didn't do what they thought he wanted to do, so crucify him. But in God's sovereignty, those very words is the very thing that played out the plan of salvation for all of mankind. That's amazing. And then they tag it with son of David. Right? That would have been a messianic word. It wasn't just something that was, although they had flawed ideas about it, they did see that he was the one that would save, or they wanted it to be. As we read that whole section there, Hosanna to the son of David, so save us, Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That statement there is packed full of awesomeness. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's, that says something. This guy's here because of the name of the Lord. He's not just happens to be passing through Jerusalem. Blessed is the Lord. And then when they say Hosanna in the highest, that means that the highest thing that God could have done is going to take place. In their mind, it's that he's going to set his kingdom into place. Now, we know that obviously that was a flaw, as I've said 1,000 times this morning. But the truth is, is that's what they thought. There was weight to what was going on here. Highest, God's kingdom now take place is what they wanted. Save us now. Make this happen. I think about some of the other things that were said around that time, specifically if you remember, do you remember Caiaphas' comments leading up to this? Let's look at it in John eleven, forty nine and 51. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas, the prophet. You ever thought about Caiaphas being a prophet? He meant something just right there in that day to take place for their Jewish people, that they would take care of Jesus, they would quiet it all down, and we'd done. but he didn't realize what he said was a picture of the ultimate atonement for all mankind. The prophet, Caiaphas. God's sovereignty playing out in this situation is just awestrucking. And his sovereignty plays out for us here today, it's no different. I think about Proverbs 16, 9, where it speaks that man makes his plans, but the Lord orders his steps. These people were all acting in a way in which they thought was the right thing to do, but what did God do with even the stuff that they were in error? Used it for his glory. Used it to the place of being able to bring him ultimate victory. I thought about some things as I was reading there, and one, you know, have we ever called on God's name with some self-serving ideas, flawed in our beliefs? Probably so, right? 
We wouldn't be human if we didn't. But then at the same time, are you and I as believers today able to rest in God's sovereignty in our life? Is it a place of rest or is it a place of tension for you? My prayer is that it would be a place of rest. That God's sovereignty in our hearts and our lives would speak to us daily. That our rest and our hope would be in Him. That when we say we have faith, that we put our full faith in who the Lord Jesus is. Because despite what was going on here, He was bigger than all of it. All this shouting and carrying on is going on. He's coming up to Jerusalem. And now we're going to see that He actually enters the city. And the questions start flowing. The third and fourth responses here have kind of combined into one. And that being the third point here, that they didn't comprehend who he was. They didn't comprehend who he was because of their flawed ideas, for example. And I thought, you know, sometimes things can be clear in our lives, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily have understanding. Just because we don't understand doesn't mean it's not clear. What Jesus was doing is clear, but they didn't see it. They didn't comprehend what was going on. The reality of their ideas and the things that they wanted to do were jading their view of what Christ was ultimately there for. There was selfish intent on what was happening. Pick it up in verse 10, and it says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? So previously we saw that there was a crowd leading up into Some were behind him, some were before him, and now we see he's entering into the city. And he's entering into the gate. Which gate? The eastern gate. Also known as the beautiful gate. It was over by the Mount of Olives. The the city there had about eight different entrances. And this would have been the main one on the eastern side. Near the temple. But they're saying, who is this? And when I first thought that, I was like, that's kind of odd. That they're asking, who is this? Do they not hear all the shouting all the noise, all the chaos. And I guess like any of us, we can miss things. And I guess that's obviously part of it. But they didn't comprehend what was going on. They didn't comprehend who he was. But then I, like, but then I thought about their response. And then it says in verse 11, And the crowd said, so, right, so we had the whole city. Now we back to the crowd. And it says, The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Is that what they were saying earlier? What were they saying earlier? Son of David. Messiah. But now he's just a prophet? From this obscure land of Nazareth? Was he Messiah when the emotions were high and they thought he was going to do something amazing? And I realized the prophet Jesus is still a great name. But why did they say it different? Why just a prophet? Why not the Messiah anymore? I believe it's because they didn't truly comprehend who he was. He wasn't there and ultimately doing what they wanted. Because I got to think, when he comes into that eastern gate, I'm sure like any place, there's ways in which you can go to get to certain places. But we know that where Jesus went first was the temple. He looks around. It's late in the evening. Heads back out. 
But maybe they were thinking that he was going to go to the center of the government. Maybe they thought he was coming in that moment and this is when it was going to happen. But then he tails off to the temple. Text doesn't specifically show us that, but we know that he did go there. We know he came in through that gate and we know he was not there to overthrow the government. Jesus' triumphant entry in that time hadn't been triumphant in their heart. Didn't meet the needs and the ideas that they ultimately had. And this incomprehension is no different than today. And it's no different than when we look at Scripture throughout all times. It's interesting, Pastor Ben mentioned that idea of Isaiah 6. Without any planning, this text brought me to that part after that in Isaiah 6. After Isaiah has his vision. And in verse 9 and 10, he says, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on serving, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. For us here today, Looking at it in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's been incomprehension throughout all time. There will continue to be incomprehension about what the Lord did until he has a triumphant entry into your heart. Let me ask you this. I wonder today if we're having some of those same questions here personally. Maybe you're here today and you've heard of this Jesus, but you have no idea who he is. You've heard the story, but you don't comprehend what he did for you on the cross. Maybe you're here and you've reduced him down to just being a prophet. Maybe he's not Messiah. Maybe he doesn't have the ability to save now, as they stated. Maybe it's not glory in the highest. Or maybe you've been saved by grace, but acting like someone in the crowd. Expecting the Lord to do things that that's not what he came for. Ultimately, today, as we stand here, as we, as we wrap this up, as we think about the impact and the excitement of the triumphal entry, as we look at this week of passion that plays out, it's so easy for us to walk out of here and just get back to normal life. But noted over 2,000 years ago, this day marked day after day after day of the Lord doing ministry like never before, leading up to the cross leading up to ultimate victory in Him as the Savior of the world. Think back to the Christmas series. What did He come? To save. The fulfillment of His salvation all the way back then in Bethlehem is now coming to fruition. It's now taking place. And you may be here saying, I don't know anything about this God, this Jesus. I don't understand any of it. But my encouragement to you is you start at the very first place is that God is high and God is holy. He's creator. He's set apart. 
from everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's ever faithful. He's ever loving. He's immutable. He embodies the aseity of who he is. God is all of those things. He stands in stark contrast of us as man. What did the prophet say about us? That we are, our hearts are deceitful, wicked. Who can know what they could do? We have our original sin that we came into life with, and we have our actual sin that we've walked out. But God saves us in that moment. But we've got to start with a high view of God and a low view of man. And I'm not talking about you've got poor self-esteem. You've got nothing outside of Christ. A low view of man is what saves us in view of a holy God. But the victory comes through the cross. The victory comes through what started here on Palm Sunday. As Christ makes his entry into those gates, he goes to the temple, looks around and says, this is not what my church was meant to be. Oh, but three days later, salvation's going to come on that cross. Still a problem. Have you accepted all that I've just said? Or do you stand in rejection of the answer to the problem of your sinfulness in connection to God's holiness? A decision must be made. There's no middle ground. You accept or you reject. It's a story every one of us in here has come to, front, has come to the point with at some point in our lives. If he's your Lord and Savior, you've reconciled that. If you stand here today and that hasn't happened, you need to make a decision for the Lord. We want to help you with that. Outside in the foyer, but near the welcome desk, we've got someone that would love to meet you there. We've got some books that we'd like to give with you and explain some things to you. Help you walk through this and think through this. Some of you may walk back there and the Lord saved you along the way. Some of you may get there and in that moment, the Lord's going to do a work in your heart that only he could do. But we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the triumphant entry because this is what the Lord has done for us. As you go through this week, as you read through the scripture, as you look at what the Lord done, did on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, may it just have amazing impact in your heart. And may every year, year after year, when we go through this, it doesn't ever just become Palm Sunday. May it not be jaded and be hidden by everything else. But may we see the power of what the Lord was doing. And may our ideas as man that are flawed would come into line with the perfect plan of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our actions and in our words and ultimately in our hearts. God, you are so good. God, you are so faithful. That even when our ideas, Father, don't line up, that your sovereign hand is at work. God, thank you for those here today, God, that have named you as their Lord and Savior. And God, thank you for those that are here today, God, that don't know you. God, our desire is that you would save them right where they are. That they would come to the saving faith 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, as we walk out of this building, God, let it be a celebration that you are coming to Jerusalem to do the work that had to be done, set before the very foundations of all the earth. It's happening. It has happened. We live in it, God, and we love it. We are so thankful. God, prepare our hearts. God, as we walk through this week, God, let us be quick to share with those around us the message of the gospel. God, it's in your name we pray. God, and it's in your name we give all the glory. Amen. I love you. Thank you. We'll see you next week.